What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. We do. We have. And we will. There we go. (laughs) Yes. Uh, How are you today? I'm uh, very tired, but I'm doing exceptional because of it. Well, this. My reasoning of being tired (laughs) is because I just woke up from... Well, three hour. I mean, it was <laughs> technically you could call it. I had already gone to bed because sure. <laughs> it's so late, but it's sure. not usually the time I go to bed. So sure. Fair. <laughs> that is fair. Yeah. How about you? I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I had my like little moment of mental droop probably like seven hours ago. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like well past that. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Yes. Well, what are you drinking tonight? So, <laughs> I'm being really boring tonight. Uh-huh. I've been feeling like parched. I don't know if it's the pollen or the wildfire smoke mm-hmm. or what, but I've been feeling super dry, so I'm just having water. Yeah. And wouldn't you know well, it? So are you. Same thing. <laughs> super fun. I know. Sorry, guys. Yeah. But I will say, uh, though I'm not drinking it tonight, I have been enjoying recently this uh Cookie dough flavored whiskey, yeah, called dough ball, yeah, and uh, that's been fun for me. I've been drinking a uh, not not a lot of that. It's not like I'm like chugging down. That's all I've been drinking. Whiskey. But I've had I had <laughs> you know kind of one one of those about every two or three nights in the last yeah. couple weeks, and that's been that's been fun for me. So, Good. I'm yeah. glad you like the painful cookie dough. Yeah, the spicy cookie dough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. Spicy yeah, cookie yeah. dough beverage. <laughs> Oh, well, my love, do you have a feel-good fact for us this week? I do. All right. So sleep studies conducted on honeybees indicate that it's highly likely that they dream. Oh. According to the studies, the bees sleep for six to eight hours a night, and they sleep so deeply that it suggests that they retain memories and can learn new things, meaning that it's also possible that they can dream. And (laughs) they do tend to like hold each other's feet while they sleep. Also, just as an added bonus, <laughs> yeah, yeah. feel good fact. Oh, heartwarming. Bees are the best. Cute. Save the bees. Save the bees. Without them, the whole thing would just fall apart, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. Right. 100%. We need the bees, but they don't need us. <laughs> they, no, they definitely don't. They don't like us all that much. Most Honestly, of the time, I feel like mood. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Uh, so, okay, before we kick off the episode, I want to announce the recipient of May giving Mm. over on Patreon. Our subscribers voted and decided that for the month of May that we'll be giving to futures without violence. Here's their mission statement for more than 30 years. Futures has been providing groundbreaking programs, policies, and campaigns that empower individuals and organizations working to end violence against women and children around the world, providing leadership from offices in San Francisco Washington, D.C., and Boston, we've established a state-of-the-art center for leadership and action in the Presidio of San Francisco to foster ongoing dialogue about gender-based violence and child abuse. Striving to reach new audiences and transform social norms, we train professionals such as doctors, nurses, judges, and athletic coaches on improving responses to violence and abuse. We also work with advocates, policymakers, and others to build sustainable community leadership and educate people everywhere about the importance of respect and healthy relationships. Our mission is a future without violence that provides education, safety, and justice, and hope. 
Wow. So thank you so much to our patrons for supporting our show and for allowing us to give to organizations like Futures Without Violence. We'll be announcing June giving here in the next couple of days. So if you want to be part of that poll and want to gain access to all of our content ad free, as well as two monthly exclusive bonus episodes, head on over to Patreon and sign up. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that we do that. I say that every month. It makes me happy every month to be able to actually support things Mm -hmm. that are important to us and and to the show. Yeah. So, yeah, that was really not profound, but But you all know my heart Yeah. (laughs) at this point. Okay. So you want to jump into our part two of the Bridgewater Triangle? Yes. Yes. So before we do that, um, maybe you are going to, going to prep us a little bit, but, and, and recap last episode. I don't know if you are a little bit, yeah, a little bit. Okay. But if you are somebody who, uh, is hearing this episode, but has never heard about the Bridgewater triangle yet, then you need to back it up and you need to go listen to last week's episode, part one. Episode all, 67. Yes. And get all of the foundation laid. I'm just going to say that and I'll let you <laughs> finish up. Whatever yeah. else you need to say to, Thank you. to prime and prep all <laughs> I'll that. I'll probably echo your statement. So good, that's good. good. Okay. So in part one, we spent some time learning about a small fraction of the verified historical events that have taken place in the 200 square mile triangle located in southeastern Massachusetts, hmm. an area that has become known as the Bridgewater Triangle. For centuries, the land has been marred with the blood of countless innocent lives with atrocities so dark that the location stands on its own as one of the single bloodiest chunks of land in the world, at least in the country, I would say. Hmm. The Bridgewater Triangle boasts the beautiful landscapes and stunningly naturally occurring forests, rock formations, and the like, but what makes this place so unique is the trail of stories of everything ranging from poltergeists to apparitions, from ghostly hitchhikers to strange creatures and thin time. Hmm. We've got stories of Bigfoot and Pukwajis, Thunderbirds and zombies, deadly compulsions and lights from out of this world, and that barely scratches the surface of the mystery and intrigue of the Bridgewater Triangle. Hmm. Hang on, Kev. Why? Because this one's a doozy. Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> I can already tell because you've used two words for some phenomena that I don't know anything about. Never Whoop-dee. heard that word before. So whoop de doo Yeah. Okay, so in part one, I briefly mentioned Lauren Coleman, the cryptozoologist who coined the term Bridgewater Triangle. Mm. And I wanted to spend a second talking a little bit more about his work in the triangle, as well as some of the other key players that have had a hand in popularizing public interest in the area. And I'll kind of sprinkle those figures throughout the show. Mm -hmm. In 1975, Lauren made the move from California to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it wasn't long before he began noticing a trend. Coming out of the area that he would later name the Bridgewater Triangle, Lauren noticed a high concentration of bizarre reports. After noticing this trend, Lauren took on the task of speaking with locals to the area, digging through archived reports, and welcoming additional paranormal researchers who were coming in with interest in the area with open arms. What they uncovered was not only a high amount of reports of high strangeness, but a pretty impressive variety on the types of reports. Mm. When we're looking at you know, where to start when it comes to the Bridgewater Triangle. It's complicated, to put it lightly. (laughs) So we're going to start by zooming into the Hockamock Swamp. Okay. The word Hockamock comes from the Algonquin word, meaning the place where spirits dwell, or it's also used in the context of a name for the devil. So that's nice. Hmm. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. The 17,000-acre area of wooded wetlands serves as an important water source and is home to various endangered species of animals, and perhaps more relevant to today's story, many believe the Hockamock Swamp is home to the top dog of cryptids, none other than Bigfoot. Mm. Since the swamp is so huge, it extends into multiple towns within the Bridgewater Triangle, and there have been countless very consistent reports of Bigfoot sightings coming from the Hockamock Swamp for decades. Wow. On top of that, the swamp is also a hotspot for just about every kind of paranormal occurrence in the books. Hmm. It's also home to an 8,000-year-old Native American burial ground, and according to some reports, when an archaeologist crew was investigating the area, they opened some of the graves, and this red ochre from inside kind of just like mysteriously started bubbling out before it dissolved completely. Hmm. And... Potentially even stranger, every single photo of the archaeological dig failed to develop. What? So that's a little strange. That is strange. Just like a little side note. Mm. 
Well, and we we haven't done a deep dive into the Bigfoot yet, but um, we need to for sure. One thing that we have touched on a few times here and there is how frequently Bigfoot sightings and paranormal events tend to coincide. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting tidbit. I'm sure there'll be more to talk about with that later. But um, yeah, that's something that jumps out at me right away. Is I, right. I'm just like, okay, if there are a lot of Bigfoot sightings here and a lot of paranormal events, there's not necessarily one is the cause for the other, but there's some kind of tie to that, it seems like. I feel like we also need to do a full episode on that. Yeah. Because people have like spent their entire adult lives studying that. Yeah. yeah. And have come up with some crazy, but like also very, very fascinating and interesting and potentially plausible explanations. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we'll have to do that at some point. For sure. In the 1970s and 80s, there was a wild boom of Bigfoot sightings, each with varying degrees of credibility. While plenty could be written off as outright hoaxes or a case of mistaken identity, Mm -hmm. many others were perplexing to say the least. For several weeks in the spring of 1970, residents were in a panic after several sightings of a large seven-foot-tall creature spotted in and around the swamp. Mm. Sometimes the creature was seen running on all fours and other times it was seen moving around on two legs. Under the impression that they were seeing a species of bear, state and local police organized a search team equipped with guns and hunting dogs, hoping to find the creature and put the public at ease. It all came to a terrifying head when two officers were sitting in a parked cruiser on April 8, 1970. Out of the blue, the back end of the vehicle was lifted completely off of the ground, and then it was dropped with a loud crash. Oh, wow. The officers put the car in drive and scanned the area, and that's when they both saw a large, hairy, ape-like creature running on two legs in the direction of someone's backyard. Despite the massive search effort, no bear or any creature matching the description in the reports was ever found. Jeez. To be fair, there are species of bear native to Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and they can reach five to seven feet in height when they're standing upright. Mm-hmm. So it's not impossible that they were seeing a bear, but still more reports have come in and they are harder to explain. There's something extra eerie to me when the sightings come from people like hunters or trappers or some kind of outdoor expert, mm-hmm. because it's like people who are familiar with the area. They're familiar with local species, right? you know. They are aware of known dangers of the occupation and that kind of stuff. Right. And so when they spot something that they can't explain, I'm personally much more inclined to believe their Mm -hmm. stories usually. Yeah. I don't know. It's just a compelling thing to me. So one of a report like this one came from a man by the name of John Baker. John, like his father and grandfather before him, was a muskrat trapper. (laughs) He knew the ins and outs of the swamp and could navigate it safely day or night. As a muskrat trapper, he would typically set up his traps in the dark of night from his canoe. So on one night in the early 1980s, he was out on the swamp not far from his home in West Bridgewater when he realized that something was following him. He wondered if it was another trapper or a hunter out and about, but when he laid eyes on the silhouette of a figure in the shadowy woods, he saw what he described as a man beast. And he noted the distinct smell of skunk and dirt (laughs) suddenly appear as well. So John's heart, I mean, he's freaking out. Yeah. (laughs) He's not okay. His heart jumped into his throat as he watched the creature walking slowly around in the area before it disappeared. And before or since that sighting, John Baker swears he's never witnessed anything like it. Mm. Very, very strange. I just got goosebumps. I know. I can't wait. You're going to get him so many (laughs) times this episode. (laughs) I'm so exciting. I'm so excited. I guess I'm exciting too. And and exciting. Just generally. (laughs) Another very famous Bigfoot sighting was had by a man named Carlston Wood, which is a fun name to Hmm, say. That's a fun name. On a winter weekend day in 1970, when Carlston was a child, he and a bunch of his friends made their way into Hockamock Swamp outside of West Bridgewater for like a little friend's outing. It was kind of like a fun little tradition to walk on the frozen swamps and explore the woods together, just being kids. Yeah. While they were there, the kids were stopped in their tracks by a massive, man-like, bipedal creature covered from head to toe with thick, shaggy fur that they saw watching them from a dense grouping of bushes and trees. Hmm. It was like crouched down oh, looking at yeah. them. Yeah. Like in like a pouncy posture is what I visualize at least. Yeah. They all watched the creature as it silently watched them when suddenly the reality of what they were looking at struck them. 
They didn't know exactly what it was, but they all believed that they were in danger. And so the children literally just screamed and ran off as fast as their feet would carry them, not stopping until they were out of the swamp completely, each heading home without so much as a word shared between them. They just kind of ran and then parted waters. When they all got together on the school bus the following Monday, they all kind of casually brought up the incident from the other day. It was kind of like, so (laughs) did we actually see that? And when they got to talking, all of the kids had the exact same memory. They fully believed that they did see a monster in the swamp and would go on to name the creature Hockamock Harry. (laughs) And Carlston even made a song about it, which is fun. That is fun. A major player in documenting the various reports of Bigfoot sightings was an amateur paranormal researcher by the name of Joseph DeAndrade. Joseph had a special interest in the Native American Sasquatch legends and would eventually form the Bridgewater Triangle Expedition Team. His work collecting and sharing the reports is widely regarded as some of the most valuable efforts in exploring, investigating, and documenting the phenomenon in the Bridgewater Triangle. In an area outside of the Hockamock Swamp, but still within the Triangle, Joseph had his sighting in the winter of 1978. Joseph and a friend of his, who was a Native American man and equally passionate about the Sasquatch legends, ventured out to Claybanks Pond in search of signs of Bigfoot after hearing reports of one being spotted in the area. Mm. While they were scanning the ground for prints, they had their backs turned to the water when suddenly Joseph heard a voice in his head that was not his own. It told him to turn around. This was super out of the norm for Joseph, and so in his mind, he kind of asked himself the question, like, why? Mm. Wondering why he should turn around when the voice said, turn around and you will see. Mm. When he turned around, he saw a creature with long, dark brown fur all over its body, walking slowly on a hill across the pond. He couldn't see its face and could only see the creature from the waist up, but he told his friend to turn around and look. So as he's kind of trying to get his friend's attention, he turned his back to the creature again. And when they both turned around to see where the creature was just moments before, it was gone. One interesting thing about the reports is that they kind of come in booms. Mm -hmm. Dozens of people would make reports within a relatively short period of time and in a pretty condensed space. And the reports would be crazy consistent in the description of the creature. Mm, yeah. At the same time as the Bigfoot sightings, there were also many reports of animal mutilations across the same area, with livestock being strangely maimed and mutilated. Mm. Other evidence of the creature included massive footprints, clumps of hair that they couldn't figure out what species they belonged to, but they yeah. were not synthetic. Yeah. And others describing the feeling of being watched, accompanied by that smell of skunk and dirt. Wow. Which is very strange. Yeah. Hmm. I, I've only heard of the smell of skunk being tied to something Sasquatchy a couple of times. So that that's still... There's a lot of skunk ape legends. Yeah. but yeah. So it's kind of new to me, but it's not mm-hmm. something that I've never heard before. So sure. that's, that was like one that I, I... You know, that's not a part of the legend that comes up in like casual conversation very often. Is, yeah. And it smelled like a skunk. What? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it, uh, as you're talking about, it, I'm like, Oh yeah, I have heard that before. That's interesting. So yeah. on top of the many Bigfoot sightings over the years, there are plenty of other reports of strange creatures, enormous snakes that Lauren Coleman has described as having ghost like characteristics on one hand, but are frighteningly physical on the other. Hmm. So what we're not talking about is someone's escaped pet or a situation like the Burmese python epidemic of the Everglades, Mm. but something more on the fringe of zoology, leaning more into the realm of cryptozoology. Okay. These snakes tend to be shockingly large, as big around as a stovepipe and impossibly long. They're almost always dark in color, they're not a known species, and they tend to be extremely bold and aggressive, unlike virtually every known species of snake. They're also never caught. Mm. And they have been seen by residents who live near the Hockamock Swamp and near Freetown State Forest, as well as by contract workers who are like in the swamp for job purposes who like mm-hmm. don't know anything about the snake legends. Right. Which oh, is very wow. weird. And like, I mean, this Ooh. is sending like grown men sprinting for their lives out of the swamp. Because they're just massive. Crazy, huge snakes. Wow. Ooh. Yeah. Super weird. There are also tales of mystery cats. 
Extremely large unknown species of cats have been spotted in various towns in the Triangle with such frequency that stories of the weirdly enormous cats even ended up in the newspapers. What? So, wow. Isn't that crazy? There's kind of a variety, and I'm kind of blending them all together a mm-hmm. little bit in this. So they tend to, there's black panthers, which are not indigenous to Massachusetts. Hmm. So they're black panther-like, I guess, in appearance. Okay. So we're just going to pick a couple of these reports to go through. And a quick content warning, there will be a mention of violence against an animal here in a second, and then again a few minutes from now. And so if you want to skip forward, if you don't want to hear about mm-hmm. that, I'll give mm-hmm. you a second. In 1993, an African serval was found in a field, which is a, I don't know if it's technically a large cat, like, like a, like a big cat, like classified a lion, as a big cat, yeah. but it is a large cat. Yeah. So it was found in a field. It had been decapitated and the wound was so clean that the cut was described as surgical and there were no other injuries to the serval's body whatsoever. Hmm. While it's true that people do keep these cats as pets, legally or otherwise, it's just not super likely that someone would go to the lengths of importing the cat, paying a hefty price for it, especially in the 90s, only to decapitate it and abandon its corpse in a field. Right. Like, that's very strange. Some people have made the argument that maybe this was like a taxidermy situation, but you don't just throw the whole body into a field. Right. Especially considering that it wasn't injured. Yeah. So it's just a very strange, like maybe like a trophy is what Mm -hmm. people were saying, but I don't know. It just feels weird to me. That is, yeah, yeah. There were also no reports of someone claiming that their pet was missing and nobody ever came forward with an official explanation about the serval. And then we have the Mansfield Mystery Cat. It has a name. (laughs) Oh, wow. In 1993, again, same year, residents of Mansfield and Easton reported seeing a huge tan cat prowling around their neighborhoods. While it was first believed to be a mountain lion, those who saw it said that it was way too big to be a mountain lion. Hmm. Police departments were inundated with call after call from locals, and nobody could effectively identify it. There are also some photos of a huge cat seen in Massachusetts on the internet, but it's still not clear what that cat even is. That's Hmm. more recent. Oh, wow. Okay. There's also reports of thunderbirds seen flying above the swamp and in nearby neighborhoods. According to various Hmm. Native American folklore, the Thunderbird is a massive raptor charged with protecting humans from evil spirits. It's said to rule the upper world, while a great horned serpent and an underwater panther rule the underworld. Hmm. It's said to be so powerful and that it can fly so high that it carries the rain on its back and can create thunder with its wings. So the massive birds that people are seeing are not blue herons, owls, cranes, or any known species of bird. Okay. They are entirely too huge for that. Most of the sightings say that the birds themselves stand around six feet tall mm-hmm. with a wingspan of around 12 plus feet. That is a huge. Yeah, massive bird. Huge. One of the most credible reports of Thunderbirds in the Triangle took place in 1971. Police Sergeant Thomas Downey claimed to have seen a giant bird with a 12 foot wingspan as he was traveling down a road near the swamp. He said that the bird was standing still when it suddenly, with a few flaps of its wings, lifted itself off of the ground and took flight. After this happened, Sergeant Downey told virtually nobody about what he saw for (laughs) years. Over time, he told a few friends and family members, but when word started to spread that he'd seen something, local news outlets contacted him looking for an interview, and he was like, No, absolutely not. He was extremely concerned that people would think he was crazy. And so he didn't give his full account until years later. Mm. That same year, dozens of reports of a similar creature were reported all across the area, leading many paranormal researchers to actually believe that some kind of ancient creature, perhaps one charged with protecting the people from the evils of the swamp, has Mm. been seen. That or it could be an an undiscovered species. But at this point, nobody knows. Yeah. Very strange. That is so strange. There's Mm. also the story of a huge black dog with fiery red eyes that wreaked havoc on Abington in 1976. So this creature was a big black dog that was taller than the ponies it was caught devouring. Ponies? Ponies. Oh my. Yes. So the killer dog was seen by a farmer who ran outside only to discover it towering over his two ponies. The dog then ripped out the throats of both ponies, killing them both. He took a shot at the monster, but it ran off. For weeks afterwards, multiple people reported seeing the dog, and it sent the whole Abington area into a terrified frenzy. 
so much so that the local schools went on a sort of lockdown where children were not out, like allowed outside oh, for wow. recess and local homes and business owners bought guns to protect themselves. And then one day it just wow. disappeared and no more reports came came forward at all. So huh. what was this weird like hellhound monster dog? Yeah, that's nobody knows. Really weird. And as far as I could find, they haven't seen it since. Yeah. Hmm. Super weird. Sheesh. On the topic of strange monsters in the triangle are the stories of zombies. Ooh, okay. I knew I would get okay. you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> While the zombies we picture are the ones on the big screen, the undead prepared to attack and kill the living, feasting on the brains and guts of their victims. Yes. The zombie that we're talking about is a little different, I okay. guess. Okay. So rather than a ravenous undead pack of animal, the these zombies, it's kind of confusing. So I'm going to do my best here. They're the dead who don't know that they're still partially alive in some way. They're like, hmm. it's like they're completely dead, but they're completely alive, but they're not undead is how it was explained. So I was like, okay, <laughs> yes, that makes uh, sense. Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. As we've talked about on this show, many cultures around the world have practiced religions such as voodoo or Santeria. And those religions eventually merged with Catholicism to create, Faiths such as the Palo Moyambe, mm. which we talked about in the Mark Kilroy episode. Yeah. And believe it or not, zombies are a staple fixture in many variations of this faith. <laughs> so there's a practice of essentially making your own zombie. In these cultures, a person is given a drug by a priest or a medicine man that induces an extreme paralysis that they will use to convince a community that someone has died. The person Ooh. will even undergo burial. When they're dug back up by the priest, they'll then be told by the priest that like he essentially owns their soul and he'll oh. do that using a form of hypnosis, which is then reinforced by the whole community who believes that the person is dead and then mm. shuns them, which pushes the person under the total control of the priest or the medicine man. Wow. In the Freetown State Forest, there are stories of people being chased by humans whose eyes are vacant and lifeless. And these humans are also said to be absolutely filthy, like covered in dirt as if they'd been dug up out of the ground. Hmm. Wow. So I've got two weird zombie stories. Okay. And then we'll move through that like real <laughs> okay. quick. So okay. one yeah. is told by a woman who was walking along a walking trail when she saw what she thought was a ghost. But when it got closer, she realized it was a man. She said that the man, who was positively covered in dirt, turned and followed her at a steady pace, slightly limping all the while. The weirdest thing about it was that though the man was almost at a jogging pace, his leg dragging behind him and breaking twigs and branches as he walked was the fact that he made virtually no noises hmm. apart from his steady, calm breathing. He wasn't grunting. He didn't talk. It was, he was just breathing like normal, but almost running. Weird. Very Ooh, strange. Yeah. So another story like it comes from a group of friends. They were on a walking trail when suddenly they came across a woman dressed in super outdated clothing, like period clothing. Mm, okay. So she was also covered in dirt so much so that it was rising off of her in puffs as she moved. Wow. Her eyes were vacant and lifeless as she approached them. She never said a word and her pace and breathing never changed even as she chased them to their vehicle. So though they thought she was mm. gone when they got to their vehicle, she suddenly appeared at their car and attempted to drag one of the young men out of the no. car with otherworldly superhuman strength. Oh. <laughs> you know, thankfully, they got away and reported what they saw. And still, there are more reports just like these of zombies in the woods. Wow hate it oh that just yeah i'm i'm very freaked out that's crazy i would like to stay indoors when i hear stories oh, like that yeah I'm like i'm scared to take the trash out or go get oh, the mail wow. at night now <laughs> wow yeah that's next level like good grief wild in the hockamock swamp and all across the bridgewater triangle there are also several very strange rocks which like sounds kind of mm. funny to be like, got some weird rocks got to talk about. Got some weird rocks. So yeah. Solitude Rock is an old stone that someone had carved a poem into. And it's also a spot that attracts lots of visitors even to this day. And even though it's not really spooky or supernatural, you don't really see something like that mm. super often. Because yeah. it's just like a rock in the middle of the woods that someone carved a poem into. Yeah. There's huh. also Profile Rock that looks a lot like a man's face when you view it in profile. Some people say that there's spook lights, <laughs> which we'll talk about. Um, and like ghostly figures and stuff like that around it. But those reports are a little bit hard to like 
mm. narrowed down in like in a concise way. Sure. There's also uh, Anawan Rock, which is a location where King Philip's war chief, Anawan, was captured, effectively ending King Philip's war, which mm. we talked about in part one. Yes, yes. People who have visited the area have spotted phantom fires that will be burning wildly one minute and then totally gone the next, as well as the sound of what? drumming, more spook lights, and even full-bodied apparitions. <laughs> There's Ooh. also the iconic Asanet Ledge in the Freetown State Forest. I think, okay, I'm, I really hope I'm not butchering that pronunciation. I've seen it pronounced like Asanet, and I've seen it like Asanet, okay. Asonet. So I'm just going to just speak from my heart. Sure. <laughs> Feel free to correct me if you know <laughs> the correct pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. So Asanet Ledge is an 80-foot granite face that towers above a body of water. Visitors to the ledge have claimed to hear the sounds of disembodied voices urging them to jump off the ledge, while others talk about a feeling of complete and utter dread or sadness mm. that suddenly comes over them while they're standing near the ledge. The ledge has been tied to countless extremely tragic deaths over the course of many centuries, so we're going to talk about some of those as well. But first, a quick content warning. There will be mentions of suicide and suicidal ideation in the next part of the story, and so if you don't want to hear that, feel free to skip ahead. Mm, yeah. So the ledge itself is actually a very beautiful site, but it's also home to countless cases of suicides. Throughout the duration of King Philip's War, it's said that many Wampanoag people and people from allied tribes plunged from the ledge to their deaths to avoid being killed or captured and sold into slavery by the colonists. Mm, There's also sad. the story of a young woman who leapt to her death after she was forbidden to be with the man that she loved. People who visit the rock describe being struck with an overwhelming feeling of despair. Hmm. And many talk about being hit with sudden, like almost an irresistible urge to jump when they're standing near the cliff's edge. Like they can't explain why they feel this crazy urge to jump. Yeah. It's like an intrusive thought hmm. gone wild, like on steroids. And how how tall is this ledge again? 80 feet high. It's huge. Okay. Yeah, that's that's up there. I guess to the point that's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. People with no history of suicidal ideation or depression or any other type of mental illness have jumped seemingly for no reason. And then there are more stories of people who accidentally fell off the ledge. People have slipped. Yeah, that's sad. Very sad. Many people who have experienced that feeling of like the urge to jump but resisted have claimed that they saw a young, beautiful woman in white beckoning them to jump, while others have claimed to see indigenous warriors throwing themselves off the ledge. Oof. Others still have described being physically attacked by something unseen and even the feeling of being physically pushed towards the very edge of the cliff, which some people speculate like, Maybe mm. people aren't actually willingly jumping or falling mm. by accident. Right, right. Which is creepy. There's <sighs> also bluish orbs, similar to the will-o'-the-wisps in various European folklore, that are said to float around the ledge and in multiple areas within the triangle as well. Mm. And, okay, so there's also a Native American figure in folklore that features a bluish glowing orb. So we're wow. going to talk about that. Okay, I'm... That's a lot. Do you need a minute to talk about the ledge? Well, okay. So first of all, uh, all of that is like <laughs> making my hair stand on end, uh, which is crazy. Um, but also the the will of the wisps thing. Can you explain a little bit of what that is? Maybe we'll get more in depth another episode, but I don't think we've ever talked about this. Have we? Yeah. So I don't know if we're going to, I'm sure that we'll include them in a folklore episode at some point, mm -hmm. but really the, the gist is that they're like ghostly little lights mm -hmm. that'll typically be seen over like a marsh or a boggy kind of area. And <laughs> sometimes they're like false hope. They're like, a, they'll kind of like oh. lure you. Other times they're like more mischievous in oh, nature. Okay. Yeah. So, so they're, they're, similar i'm trying to remember what movie it was it's like a disney movie brave, brave. is it brave mm -hmm. yeah okay so they're those wisps they're kind of the same concept yes. but those ones are a little more benevolent a little bit more like uh <laughs> helpful yeah. Yeah. buddies and generally <laughs> and they're cute yeah and generally these ones that you're talking about in the bridgewater triangle are not like that so might still be cute, there's some debate nice. about the specific ones by the ledge Mm -hmm. um, because of a particular figure that I'm going to talk about next. Oh, okay. There's some, there's some people who have speculated that they're connected. Sure. So we'll get into that, but I do think that we should do a whole, we have, I have a couple of European folklore okay. themed ish episodes. Yeah. I'm being more broad than 
yeah. that I mean to on purpose. Sure, sure. But uh, yeah, so let's let's keep going okay. and we'll see what okay. thoughts you have on these little critters. Sure. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. So people who study the area and who are familiar with the history wonder aloud if the ledge and other areas throughout the triangle are hunting grounds for a mythical creature known as the Pukwudgie. Oh, yeah, this is one that I have never heard of before. Yes. So Pukwudgies are staple figures in various Native American folklore. They're said to be around two to three foot tall goblin or troll-like creatures with hairy grayish or bluish skin, (laughs) and they use manipulation and trickery to fool people into getting close to them. Or they appear in the form of an enticing blue orb and are convinced, like they'll like convince people to Mm. jump off a ledge maybe, or wander off into quicksand or some other form of mortal peril. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So anyone who falls victim to the Pukwaji is believed to be trapped underground for eternity, enslaved to the creature forever. Wow. They're very scary little monster trolls. Oh my, yeah, that takes like a pretty serious jump from uh, being essentially um, poltergeists, but not ghosts. <laughs> yeah. To, and now you're enslaved by them. Like, that's yeah, a It's giving mermaid. Jump. Yeah, yeah. So one story of someone who believes that they may have come across a Pukwaji comes from a man named Bill Russo. In the late 1980s, Bill worked a three to midnight shift at his job in his hometown of Raynham. Every night when he'd get home, he'd take his 90 pound Shepherd Rottweiler mix, Samantha, for a walk. I love that it was Samantha. (laughs) So cute. So they had a usual route that they would take that would lead them into town before they'd head home for the night. But on this particular night, for no particular reason, Bill decided to take a different route through a more wooded area behind his home. Mm. While on his walk, Bill and Samantha got to an old abandoned water wheel. And right next to it is a street light that casts a big like 10 foot beam of light. It's like 10 feet in diameter. As they approached the street light, Bill looked down to see Samantha and she was shaking like crazy. Hmm. She was like very scared all of a sudden. She's a big dog. Yeah. And a moment later, Bill heard a high pitched voice say, E Wan Chu, E Wan Chu, here, here, E Wan Chu. Oh my gosh. He then saw a bizarre little creature waddle into the middle of the beam of light, like the light coming from the streetlight. It was a hairy little pot-bellied creature with Ooh. eyes that were just a little bit too big for its face. Oh. It kept repeating those sounds at him. And when it was saying, Kier, Kier, Bill figured out that it was calling to him, almost like it was saying, come here, we want you, because it was like gesturing with its hands. Ooh. It never approached him, but it definitely felt like it was trying to get Bill to come into its space. Yeah. Bill and Samantha were both super scared, and so they turned around and they just made their way back home. All night, Bill sat up, replaying his bizarre encounter over and over in his head, wondering what the heck he'd seen. Yeah. At the time, he'd never heard anything about the area that he'd lived in as being like a paranormal hotspot. Yeah. And so for many years, he didn't tell anyone about his experience. But in the early 2010s, he realized that he was getting older and Mm -hmm. I feel like I shouldn't take this story with me to the grave. I should probably share it. And so he posted a blog about his encounter online, wanting to make sure that somebody would hear his story. But as far as the creature goes, Bill never saw it again. Jeez. Can you even? I'm so like, that is so scary to me. A little monster talking to you. He's like, I think it was talking English. I think it was speaking in English. Oh, like it was trying to. Yeah. Oh, wow. I believe Bill. That's like, well, and there's doesn't sound like there's any reason for him to make that up. I mean, he held on to it for like 20 years, <laughs> yeah. more than 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and uh, assuming the details of the story are true, which, you know, we, we like to suspend disbelief That's what on we this do. podcast anyway. So we're going to talk like, like as if there's no reason to not, not believe him because um, there isn't. To have a dog that big react like that mm-hmm. and not like just get on the offensive, but to like be like freaking out. Mm-hmm. That's, Shaking. Yeah. Well, it sensed something was wrong. Yeah. She knew like, oh, we can't. No yeah. cure. Like we're going no, home. No cure. No cure. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that one really scared me. Ooh, yeah. So I kind of feel like I breezed over the spook lights. So let's really quick before we move on, talk about those. Spook lights are glowing balls of light that float around and appear to have some level of intelligence. Mm. Many people believe that they are a result of swamp gases rising and falling, and others believe that they're paranormal in origin, either spiritual energy or some kind of extraterrestrial-related mm. energy. Okay. But in the context of stories like these, the belief is more on the spiritual side. An author by the name of James Michael Rice tells the story where one of his many camping trips to the Hockamock Swamp turned extra creepy. While he and a group of friends were out in the wooded area near Elm Street in Bridgewater late at night, they noticed what they thought was a hunter with a lantern in a canoe coming towards them in the water. Hmm. So as the light got closer, it split into multiple lights and the lights entered a clearing where like the people could kind of get a better glimpse. Hmm. And that's when they realized that it was not a canoe. There was no canoe. There was no hunter. Instead, it was free-floating balls of light about the size of baseballs. The group watched as the lights danced around, shouting out the colors of the lights as each of the lights repeatedly changed color. And the group kind of wanted to make sure that they were seeing the same things. Yeah. So every time they would change color, they'd be like red, blue. Weird. And they were all saying the same color at the same time. They were all seeing it. So these little lights bounced over the water almost like they were playing. Like it felt playful. And then they casually just floated out of sight into the direction that they came from and disappeared. (laughs) Wow. So that's very strange. That is strange. Okay. So, and you've, my, my first question was going to to be, what's the difference between the will, the wisps and these, Mm -hmm. but you've kind of described uh, their characteristics, physical characteristics are notably different. Right. They're kind of in the same category. Right. You know, floating little ball flame Mm -hmm. creature things, light things. But at the same time, they're just different and odd enough that Mm -hmm. they they play into. And and sounds like the wisps might have some tie in to the the other creature. The Pukwaji. Pukwaji. Thank you. Yeah. A lot of people believe, yeah, that they do, that they're, they function as a sort of additional like enticing, which is why they're compared to the will o' the wisps. Yeah. Because they almost have like a job or a function. Yeah. And so the spook lights don't have any necessarily like function like that. They're just kind of there. Yeah. They just kind of float around and do their thing. Yeah. They leave people alone. But a lot of people who say that they've seen them all describe this feeling of, of like, it's almost like the lights want them to see them Hmm. like they want to be seen which is interesting that is interesting that's something that i noticed Hmm. a lot people would bring that up which is strange yeah along with the spook lights and the blue pukwaji orbs there are many stories of ufo activity in the triangle in the 70s and 80s i know you're here for it i'm here for the ufo stuff so specifically (laughs) in the 70s there was definitely a burst of reported ufo incidents across the area with lights in the sky as well as specific descriptions of crafts from multiple people very consistently and steadily over that whole span of time Hmm. one of the more famous sightings was documented in bridgewater on halloween night in 1908 Oh, wow. So two carriage riding undertakers, which is like so spooky and Halloween-ish <laughs> to me, reported that they saw a very bright lantern-like light in the sky above them. Mm. There's not a lot. And it's interesting before I move on that they compared it to a lantern because that's what they would have right. to compare it to. Right. But they said it was like the brightest lantern that they'd ever seen above yeah. them. They yeah. Had no I clue mean, what it was. 1908 is a pretty notable time before... Mm-hmm. All of the UFO kind of hype went nuts. I mean, almost a full 40 years before like the Roswell stuff and all of that. That's crazy. Yeah. So Hmm. there's not a ton of details about the sighting, but the fact that it was documented in the local newspapers that far back, like well (laughs) over 100 years ago, is wild to me. Yeah. In 1942, another newspaper reported eyewitness reports of objects floating down from the sky above the Freetown State Forest. They almost looked like parachutes, but without any humans attached to them. Police Hmm. and military responded to the public panic about the reports swiftly, stating that they had no involvement in the objects above the forest whatsoever, but there was never an actual explanation provided about what they were. Wow. And nobody ever found any sign of them. Oh, geez. It was like a, like a 
whole fleet yeah, of whatever just, these things were. What year was that? That was 1942. Okay. So, so still before still, Roswell. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. That's kind of like so always the marking point that I yeah. point to. Yeah. Well, because that's when people started getting kind of a, a, a consistent idea of what mm-hmm. UFOs were kind of like. And so mm-hmm. anything before that is like kind of the wild west of describing it. Mm-hmm. Just like doing their best. Yeah. So there's, there's not that those stories have more um, legitimacy than newer ones. Like by default. Yeah. yeah. But, but it, it does give some degree of like, okay, there's no, there's not only is there zero benefit, but there's zero reference to go off of, right. which is kind of crazy to me to think about. It's very compelling. Mm-hmm. In 1978, two radio news reporters, Jerry Lopes and Steve Sprasia, spotted something strange in the sky one night while they were driving to the Raynham Dog Track, which is another highly paranormal site in the Triangle. Hmm. According to Steve, he first noticed a super bright light just above the tree line, and it looked as though it was getting bigger and moving closer to them. Wow. As the two men watched, the object came into clearer view. It was a massive craft hovering in the sky right above where they parked their car, so close that Jerry thought that he could have thrown a rock at it and hit it. Wow. It was very low. Jerry said that it was arrow-shaped or almost shaped like kind of like an elongated baseball home plate. Mm-hmm. And it was roughly the size of five 747s wing to wing across. It was Oh, that's massive. Unbelievably huge. Yeah. It was lined with bright lights and there were sparks coming off of it. As it slowly passed overhead, they noticed at the point of the craft was that that was where the bright light that they'd mm-hmm. initially seen was located, almost like a spotlight on the front of it. Wow. Despite Jerry's years in the Air Force and his familiarity with all kinds of aircrafts, he couldn't identify the object. And I think he said it best when he said, quote, that's not one of ours, end quote. (laughs) From there, the object blasted off into the night and out of sight. Over the next week, handfuls of reports came in about a very similar craft, which led Jerry and Steve to come forward with their story as well. So they initially didn't tell really anybody at all from what I gathered. And then when a bunch of people were talking about it and it was the exact same thing, Mm -hmm. report after report was identical. They're like, okay, I guess we should share ours too. Yeah. Wild. Oof. I could probably write a multi-part series on just the documented UFO reports in the triangle. Uh So we're going to move on from that in a second. But first, I want to talk about another key player in popularizing the triangle, which is Chris Pittman. So since he was a little kid, Chris has been enthusiastic and fascinated by UFOs, and he's dedicated his adult life to studying them. In 1999, Chris, a friend, and his then-girlfriend were contacted by a police officer who told them about multiple reports of UFOs that he'd received that night near the Taunton River just outside of Berkeley. The group headed out, prepared to camp out for the night. Chris said that they'd seen many unusual lights that night, but what was more unusual was the sound of a distant droning or humming noise that sounded like a generator, which they heard for most of the night. Mm. The following morning, Chris noticed that his girlfriend was behaving very strangely, as though she had a completely different personality. Being a UFO enthusiast, Chris had a bunch of UFO and alien knickknacks in his home that he proudly displayed, but for whatever reason, his girlfriend was suddenly petrified of them. Mm. She knew of his love for UFOs and never had an issue with the items in the home before, but that day when they got home, she told him that he needed to get rid of them. He told her that he would, but he asked why she was suddenly so scared of them. She told him that while they were camping, after everyone went to bed, that fate generator noise began getting louder and louder, which caused her to wake up. While everyone else was still asleep, she said that she looked around for a second before she was suddenly paralyzed, completely unable to move, but able to discern that her whole body was vibrating. From there, she couldn't remember anything, leading both of them to wonder if... Just like the many reports coming from supposed alien abductees throughout the years, if she too had been abducted that night near the Taunton River. But she doesn't know, which would almost be worse. That would be worse. Maybe not. Maybe it's way better that she doesn't know. It depends on, yeah. Yeah. Depends on how you look. That's subjective. Depends on what happens, but yes. Reports like this, as well as the bizarre amount of missing persons cases and mysterious deaths within the triangle, have led many to speculate if there are sinister or perhaps out-of-this-world explanations. Mm -hmm. 
So wow. that one is very creepy to me. Yeah, that's yes. I don't know if I would <laughs> prefer to know or not know. Uh, it's hard because you don't know it just what's depends. going on. Like, Cause there's the, <laughs> there's the really upsetting stories that people have told. And then there's like kind of the more funny, like, this is obviously not true, but like, I think of the Saturday night live, Saturday yeah. night live sketch <laughs> where they're yeah. describing it. It was like, <laughs> I saw so God. Good. And then the one's like, really? oh, you saw God, huh? <laughs> and she's describing a way different experience. Oh, yeah. that's funny. Oh, yeah, that is funny. I'm going to go watch all of those when we're done. <laughs> yeah. On top of the cryptid reports, UFO sightings, spook lights, unusually high levels of violent crime, mysterious deaths, and inexplicable apparent suicides are the countless reports of ghostly activity across the entirety of the Bridgewater Triangle. Reports of a shirtless, shoeless Native American spectral man who's said to appear at any time of the year is a pretty popular one. Hmm. He's typically seen running, but a few inches above the ground. Oh. So he's running fast, wow. but above the ground, before he disappears into nothing with, like, no warning. Hmm. Wow. That'd that be one's a, interesting. That'd be a crazy one. There's a weirdly high amount of stories involving phantom hitchhikers. There's like hmm. a lot of phantom hitchhikers. Like, what are all these phantom hitchhikers right. doing here? One of these is known as the redheaded hitchhiker of Route 44. Hmm. Just outside of Rehoboth and along Route 44, the man, who is usually seen wearing a flannel shirt and like layers of denim and work boots, almost like a farmer. So that's what he looks hmm. like. Okay. He also has a thick head of curly red hair and a beard. There are some other discrepancies in his appearance, but one thing that stood out to me were the reports of this guy having something off about his eyes. People say that they look normal, but they don't feel right. Hmm. Others say that they're completely black, while others say that they're like almost glowing and lifeless. Hmm. He's known to mess with the radios in people's cars. Sometimes witnesses see him standing alongside of the road, just not doing anything. Other times he'll come right up next to your car and other times he'll actually appear in your car. Ooh. There's just a dude in your car. Oh yeah. That would be. Wow. Duh. <laughs> One man claimed that when he was driving to the airport to pick up a buddy on a snowy winter night, as soon as he approached the Seekonk Rehoboth line, like the town mm -hmm. lines, the face of a ghostly man with curly red hair, a beard dressed in flannel and denim appeared in his window, almost like he was an image like across his windshield, oh, hmm. which is really creepy. That is really creepy. The man who had this encounter refused to go on the record or give his name, worried about what people would think. Hmm. Understandably. Yes. By far the scariest account of this ghost comes from a couple driving along Route 44 when they experienced car troubles late at night. Their car wouldn't start, and so the man got out of the vehicle and began to walk down the road in search of help. And that's when he saw a man dressed in a flannel shirt denim and work boots with red hair and a beard. Mm -hmm. The man attempted to talk to the figure when suddenly the redheaded man began screaming at him before he disappeared, laughing loudly from all directions oh. while the man sprinted for his life back oh, to the car. Oh my gosh. Terrifying. Yes. I am literally, I don't know if I've ever had goosebumps on my calves before, but I just <laughs> had them. That. <laughs> wow. So the figure in this story, as well as handfuls of other accounts of different phantom hitchhikers, could very well be just like really well-told urban legends. Mm -hmm. But it is one that has lasted and has been passed down for decades. Yeah. It's kind of like, from what I gathered, one of those things where it's like nobody ever talks to anyone who directly saw the sure. hitchhiker. Sure. But they like, my cousin's roommate's mm -hmm. cousin- his mom right. saw it. So, <laughs> yeah. like, that's yeah. why a lot of people think that it's just a really great just urban legend. Just a great legend. urban legend, sure. But, like, one guy made the point that you can't drive to that point in the road, the mm. Seekonk Re uh, Rehoboth line, mm. without at least thinking about it. And that's, like, the power sure. of a good story. Yep. At, I mean, at least it's a really <laughs> great scary story. Yes. Which I love. <laughs> so, given the age of this part of the country, there are a higher than average amount of cemeteries located within the borders of the Bridgewater Triangle. Mm. There are stories about several of the cemeteries being super haunted, but the Old Village Cemetery in Rehoboth is said to be one of the most haunted. Mm. People report seeing a ghostly little boy dancing and playing amongst the gravestones. People have said that though he's a child, that there's something very spooky and almost sinister about him. 
People who have reported actually talking with the little boy say that he'll ask them over and over again not to leave the cemetery and to stay and play with him. Mm. Like all good haunted places, there's also a lady in white who hovers above the gravestones late at night. Classic. There's also a man who's been nicknamed Ephraim. He is Hmm. described as appearing like almost as real as an everyday person, except for his clothing. He's usually seen wearing dark 19th century attire, but the scariest thing about him is that he's almost always seen pounding the ground with his fists, screaming and crying. Oh. Which is both very sad and very scary. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't want to see that, like, period, just yeah. anywhere, let alone in a graveyard it would be with upsetting. a guy wearing 19th century clothes. Yes, it'd be upsetting in a lot of, like, confusing ways. Like, just like, you, there's a lot of questions that are created just witnessing that. Yeah. But, like, the kinds of questions do you know you cannot get an answer to. I know, I know. <laughs> I couldn't find anything about anybody trying to have a conversation with him. I'm sure somebody's written about it somewhere, but I couldn't find anything about it. That one's spooky to me. So there's also another spirit in the old village cemetery, and it's like a cloudy vapor that kind of glows. Hmm. This only appears when there's no weather that would allow for any kind of fog or mist, and it's seen floating within the confines of the cemetery. Hmm. Which, like, very odd. That is really odd. In other cemeteries in the area, there are more reports of poltergeists, spook lights, spectral colonial soldiers, and there's countless more. So one professional paranormal investigator, so woman, she went mm-hmm. and she took an EVP recording in the Palmer River burial ground, and she got a recording of what sounded like a woman either dancing or running around her singing, la, 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 la. And giggling. But the woman who got the recording said that at the time that she got it, it was eerily silent in the cemetery. (sighs) Like she noted that it was creepy how quiet it was. Yeah. And then on that same timestamp. Yeah. Just no sounds of like anything. No ambient anything. Weird. And she got a creepy. (laughs) And I heard it. You did. You've listened to it. Yes. Wow. Okay. Terrifying. It's somebody singing. It's absolutely somebody singing. So there's another person who got another EVP recording. This time it was a woman singing, you won't let me know your love for me, which sounded almost like an old bar song. Hmm. And I heard that one too. It's also very strange. That is strange. Wow. Yeah. That's very interesting. (laughs) That's funny. That would be kind of like an old bar song that she's just kind of singing in the afterlife. That's what I would do. Roaming around. I know. That is what you would do. Roll me up some brandy. Like, uh, that's the Bell Witch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> She loved that one. She yeah. sang that at John's funeral. Really classy. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so the Hornbine Schoolhouse in Rehoboth is a one-room schoolhouse that was built in the 1840s and is also said to be haunted. It was in operation until 1913 and has since become a museum. The most famous story about the haunted schoolhouse comes from a lady who walked up to the schoolhouse to visit the museum, but the front door was locked. However, the window shutters were open, and so the lady walked around and looked into the window, and she saw a woman dressed as an old-timey school teacher, as well as a room full of school children. The lady was super excited, thinking that she was watching one of the historic recreations, and so she went to the front door again, but it was still locked. Hmm. She walked back around to the window, and this time the class and the teacher, they were still there, but the teacher was staring directly at her. And then suddenly and very slowly, the teacher and all of the students faded away. That's okay. Yeah. That one gives me all goosebumps, my entire body. That's (laughs) the visual of like looking into a window and just seeing anybody staring right back at you is already creepy. Like a friend can do that. And you'd be like, you 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 jump, you know, (laughs) right. All that story just takes it like to another dimension of spooky. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree. There's so many stories. Like it's actually really hard to narrow it down. So I'm going to just tell one more ghost story before we wrap it up. Okay. And that's the story of the mad trucker of Coppicut Road. Along the seven mile stretch of road in Freetown come the reports of the mad trucker. According to the reports, when you drive along Coppicut Road on the paved portion, everything is fine until you hit the dirt road. From there, people report being followed by a pickup truck that appears out of nowhere, flashing his lights at you and driving crazy, like swerving, Mm. and he'll try to run people off the road. 
Whenever he successfully runs someone off the road, he's seen driving off madly into the night. While his origins are unknown, those who claim to have been chased by the maniacal truck driver say that the experience is very real and left them feeling so shaken that they've opted not to take that road again. Yeah. Over the span of many decades, there are countless reports of all kinds coming from the Triangle. While some believe that the area is a paranormal vortex due to its dark and bloody history, others believe that there's another explanation that's like the idea that the land sits on an area experiencing thin time. Hmm. So I'm going to try and explain this as simply as possible. Okay. Thin time, an area experiencing thin time is an area where the veil between our world and another immaterial world may sit. The idea here is that the Bridgewater Triangle and areas like it are so close to a different world or dimension that beings can travel in and out of them, offering an interesting hypothesis as to where the many monsters, ghosts, aliens, and other inexplicable things seem to be spotted Mm. at such an abnormally high rate. Areas such as these are also believed to be magnets for real material humans to come and inflict pain or worse, leading many to believe that this place isn't so wildly paranormal because of a curse or because of innocent blood calling out for revenge, but instead because the place itself is fixed near a window into an unknown world. Interesting. But regardless of what you believe, even the most skeptical among us has to admit that the sheer number of reports within the Bridgewater Triangle have certainly earned the place its terrifying reputation. Yes. For today's story, I used mountains of really great resources and have still barely even kind of scratched (laughs) the surface of the triangle. So I feel like we'll have to come back to the Bridgewater Triangle in a future episode and tell more stories because there's just so many good ones. At one point, I walked in on you uh, with a documentary on and two books (laughs) at the same time. And I'm like, okay. And I walked right back out because I'm like, there's a lot of leave her be. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, as far as the books that I used for this in the first installment of our Bridgewater series, I used the books Mysterious America by Lauren Coleman, Ghosts of the Bridgewater Triangle and Dark Woods, both by Christopher Balzano. And I used the incredible 2013 Bridgewater Triangle documentary, just titled Bridgewater Triangle, created by Aaron Cadu and Manny Familaire, which is available on Prime and YouTube, as well as handfuls, heaps of really awesome articles. Hmm. But for now, that is what I have for you today. Wow. Uh, this this episode is up there when it comes to the amount of time that I got. Uh, that I that I had goosebumps because it was like almost as much as our Skinwalker Ranch yeah, episodes. That one freaked me out too. <laughs> well, and not to not to beat a dead horse, there's a lot of similarities between Skinwalker Ranch and Bridgewater Triangle from what you've told me, and it 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 really does maybe maybe not validate, but it makes a lot of firm evidence for the claim that there's something unique about the places themselves. Right. So, which is funny because uh, I don't remember if it was while we were recording or if it was just in passing conversation at one point that you were telling me like, oh, you might change your mind about it being based on the things that have happened versus just the location. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, well, I don't know. We'll see. And now I'm like, oh, yeah. That, that I do feel like if we do come back to Bridgewater Triangle, that I'll want to unpack that more. Yeah. Because I like, I knew I was going long. Yeah. And yeah. so I definitely like <laughs> oversimplified that whole very, very wild concept. Yes. It's, thin, it's a very complex concept. Thin time. Yeah. That's so fascinating and spooky. <laughs> it is. And yeah. Wow. Well... Thank you, everybody, for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. And yes, it, that's this one marks for sure. All three? All, all three of those. I don't know. I feel pretty savored. Ooh. I love a spooky story. I mean, definitely. Yeah, you could say that. It's definitely, but also very scary. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, if you haven't already, please make sure that you are subscribed on your favorite listening platform, and that you left a glowing five-star review. Those reviews help this podcast to be found by more people who like this kind of stuff. Also, make sure that you follow us on social media. We are at This One Is A Doozy on Instagram and TikTok, and This One's A Doozy podcast 
on Facebook. You can also connect with us more directly on Patreon. My love, why don't you tell them a little bit about Patreon? Yeah, so you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or in our Facebook about section, or you can go to patreon.com slash doozypod. And for $5 a month, you can support our show. If you do that, you will also get access to polls where you can vote on our monthly giving as Mm -hmm. well as episode topics and things like that. And you'll get access to all of our content ad-free as well as two bonus episodes each month that are exclusive to Patreon subscribers. And they are awesome. I do love them. I love those episodes too. Well, with that, everybody, we will see you next week for another doozy. Bye.